This is increment 144, pretty good biblical number. And we're going to Hebrews chapter 6 and approaching a fairly difficult passage as far as exegeting it. And we're going to mix it up a little bit with this particular passage. I'm very uncomfortable if I'm not thorough on a passage, so I don't want to bypass this too quickly. And so we're going to engage in a little bit of history of interpretation today and another thing we call dialectics, which is a theological functional specialty. And not to get too technical, but that's where we're headed. Increment 144, we see Jesus, and we'll take a moment of prayer. Father, in a passage that is notoriously unclear to readers, we pray that you'll grant us the gift of clarity, the gift of accuracy and in interpretation and precision of application. We pray most of all that this will be to the edification of the church, which is Christ's body, and to its expansion through its successful participation in its mission. And we thank you for this privilege and opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to gather up the angles and speak clearly, or at least approach some clarity, about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, a notoriously difficult passage because of the many interpretations that have come down to us over the centuries. In dealing with the whole section, Hebrews 6, 1 to 8, and especially verses 4 through 8, we find ourselves in the realm of dialectics. And by that I simply mean various interpretations of this passage will be considered critically. In other words, we'll line up a few of the most important interpretations from history and then deal with them under critical realism. First, we've just considered the hypothesis of Estheus that Hebrews 13, 22 to 25 was a dispatch note by Paul, who in turn sent off the Hebrews homily in a letter. This is a reasonable, I think, and intelligent and even responsible proposition or hypothesis. Now, because in 1322, Paul, if he wrote that dispatch note, told his readers to bear with the word of exhortation, this led Albert Van Hoy to conclude that the best conclusion to be reached on the basis of this is that the severe warning passages, like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, and I think he adds Hebrews 12, 15 to 17, did not fit the situation of Paul's intended readers or hearers and that they should consequently consider them in that light, that they are not specifically aimed at them. Second, the theory propounded by Kenneth Wiest, W-U-E-S-T, is that the readers and hearers were Jewish persons who had come a long way toward faith in Jesus and a commitment to forsake the old temple sacrifices but who were about to return to that abrogated system of sacrifices 
And this would mean that the group addressed were not yet saved, in his view, and were being warned that if they went back to the temple sacrifices, they would not be saved. A third theory proposes that Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is entirely hypothetical, that it's about a hypothetical group of people. A fourth interpretation proposes that the warning is directed to the intended audience and readers and warns them of eternal loss, which amounts to the loss of their eternal salvation. And this interpretation also affirms an admonition to modern readers that they may also lose their salvation if they apostatize from the faith or renounce their former confession of Jesus as the Son of God. I'm going to deal with these last to first. Of these proposals, the fourth is to be ash-canned immediately, entirely based on an overabundance of scriptural reasons that we've already been given in this series so far, on top of which may we, we may add the plain declaration in 2 Timothy 2.13 that God remains faithful if we become faithless. The third proposal, backing into these proposals, that the warning in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 is hypothetical, has some merit because the author quickly changes his tone in Hebrews 6, 9 and tells his readers that even though he was speaking in such a manner, he was convinced of the better things that accompany salvation. He also intimates that he does not think that his readers are there, meaning they have not defected in such a way even though evidently there was pressure on them to return to their former Judaistic practices, and that was to avoid the stigma of religious and social ostracism, shame, and even the fear of severe persecution, possibly even leading to blood or death, as Hebrews 12.4 says. However, now that does have merit that it is a hypothetical group be under consideration, but I think a better word to describe the character of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is rhetorical rather than hypothetical, because it's a rhetorical device he's using. The second proposal by Wiest has the merit that he sees the warning directed against the reversion to temple sacrifices, but the demerit that it is addressed to unsaved Jews. In other words, I agree with Wiest and I think his interpretation has merit, that what's under consideration here is that a group is being spoken of as being tempted to return to their formal loyalties and to temple sacrifices being offered in Jerusalem. And, however, I disagree and think that his interpretation has a demerit of considering that those addressed are unsaved Jews, he calls them. So it's quite clear that believers in Jesus who have been held, long held the confession of him as son of God are being spoken about here. Now the first proposal by Estheus via Van Hoy also has merit. His proposal has the effect of putting degrees of separation between this warning passage and other severe warnings 
and the intended readers or hearers. Once again, I would call it degrees of separation. This is important for 21st century readers because we are removed from this specific warning by at least two and maybe even three degrees of separation. That's why we should stand back from these warnings and view them and consider them and reflect upon them in the light of who they're addressing, hypothetically or rhetorically. First, we're not in any specific danger of reverting to an abrogated Levitical system of sacrifices. At least I can say that's probably not the case. Just as we were not in the situation of the churches in Galatia to whom Paul wrote. So we are most probably not under any dire warning of defection to the false gospel of justification by the works of the Mosaic law, even though there are false gospels in our time that have to do with human merit as over divine merit. But since these warnings, whether to the churches in Galatia or the groups addressed by Hebrews, since these warnings are not directly for us, we can see at least one degree of separation between us and them. A second degree of separation is indicated by the PT's words, the pastor teacher, the author of Hebrews, that he's convinced that the, the warning does not pertain to his audience. Hebrews 6.9. He also says it in Hebrews 10.39 and speaks about himself and them and says, we are not of that category who recedes back into ruin. But we are of those who believe to the saving or the preserving of the soul. In Hebrews 6, 9, as we're going to see, he says, I don't want you to think I'm talking about salvation itself as being an insecure thing, nor am I talking about you, because it's true and real that I can see in you that you're in the free state of soteria, that you are in the very condition that we call salvation or the spiritual life. And so a third degree of separation is indicated if Paul indeed sent this homily in a letter to readers other than those intended by the original author. I know this gets a little complex, but exegesis is sometimes messy. It's only distillation that's neat, and that phase is coming down the road toward the end. So if that's the case, that Paul indeed kind of dispatched this homily within a letter that he gave a dispatch note to, if that's the case, then there are certainly at least three degrees of separation between us, the 21st century listeners and readers, and this severe warning, as well as the warning in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Now, by saying this, I'm also affirming if the pastor teacher did not intend this homily specifically for us in the 21st century, and if Paul did not intend it specifically for us in the 21st century, how could they? They wouldn't have even known that there would be such a thing as the 21st century. Even though they didn't intend it for readers in our time, certainly the, the eternal spirit through whom Jesus offered himself to God did intend it for us, that is, to be read and understood by us. But the same eternal spirit, as Hebrews 9.14 calls him, 
would most certainly not want modern or current readers to unhealthily obsess about such passages as if they were about them or specifically to them. Now, if we honor these degrees of separation, as we should, and if we stand back from these warnings, what happens? We have a horizon that's not available to us if we look obsessively up close at these things. If we stand back, what do we have? A horizon to view, a wider horizon in which to view these warnings. And so if we honor these degrees of separation that are indicated by the scriptures themselves and stand back from these warnings, we may be treated to a horizon that's not available to us if we make it all about us. In fact, we could here indicate a principle. If you make life all about you, you'll never see the horizon about what life really is. If you make the scriptures all about you, then you're always up too close to see a horizon that God intends for you to understand. For this passage, like all other scriptural passages, has immense doctrinal and instructional value to us if we see it in God's light. In fact, it also has paranetic value. We know what paranetic means, P-A-R-E-N-E-T-I-C. It means hortatory or incentive-imparting value. So an essential ingredient for a proper interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 and 1026 to 31, for that matter, is the AD 70 Ark of Coherence, which none of these former interpretations I've mentioned really deals with in detail. The AD 70 Ark of Coherence, or trajectory of the New Testament. On the horizon, viewed from our imagined outlook platform, we can imagine a group of followers of Christ. In the, night, in the 60s, rather, of the first century, 30-some years after the accomplishment of Jesus' mission on the cross. They're living in Jerusalem, or its environs nearby. This group of believers is under political, religious, and social pressure to recede from their faith in Jesus as the Son of God, or at least their confession of faith in him, and to revert to the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. The attraction of this way of thinking or this action is that doing so would satisfy their Jewish contemporaries as well as the Roman authorities who up until the late 60s endorsed Judaism and its practices but not Christianity. It endorsed Judaism and left Jerusalem alone as long as, by contract, the Jews would offer, the priests would offer a sacrifice to Yahweh for Caesar and keep doing it, perhaps even daily. And so once again, the pressure was on Christians, on this imagined group of people, to return to those temple sacrifices. Now, were they to revert to these practices, they would be in grave danger of actually being in Jerusalem when the armies of Rome surrounded the city to inflict ferocious vengeance 
on the Jewish rebels who were acting against Jesus' urge of non-retaliation. And the Roman abomination of desolation, as it's called, the Roman legions coming down on Jerusalem, would result in the fiery destruction of the second temple, called the second death, or referred to in, as the second death in Revelation because it's the second death of the temple. The first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. The second temple destroyed once and for all and forever in A.D. 70. The new temple, of course, is you, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and in solidarity with Jesus Christ. And so again, they would actually be part of the fiercely, the fierce, fiery destruction of Jerusalem and the fiercely violent cessation of the system of Levitical sacrifices. Oh, they ended all right. They ended violently. So this squares with the final exhortation of the readers and hearers to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear his reproach, adding, for here we have no continuing city. The myth of Rome is that it is the eternal city. The myth of Jerusalem is that it is an eternal city. Neither of those earthly cities is eternal. Here we have no continuing city, Hebrews 13, 13 to 14. So the whole idea of the city is that we have an enduring city in future world. It is the heavenly Jerusalem whose great king and great archpriest is Jesus, the Son of God. I call this city and the life and livingness enjoyed in that city Oranopolis. We've already seen that we are already citizens of that city. In Philippians 3.20, we are citizens in heaven while we await our deliverer from heaven. Now, having separated ourselves by two or three degrees of separation from this warning, we're in a position to receive powerful instruction from it, oddly enough, ironically enough. What we will see highlighted in this passage, as well as in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, is the limited efficacy of the Levitical sacrifices for the expiation of sins. And by a comparison, we will see the supreme efficacy of the once and for all and forever and absolutely unrepeatable self-offering of Jesus to put away sin. In other words, this is another way of pointing to the supreme efficacy of the self-offering of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at the first word in the Greek text of Hebrews 6.4 in our last increment. It's adunaton, and you'll see this in print. And we noted that with God, all things are possible by a comparison with Matthew 19:24 to 26 and Mark 10:27 and I urgently refer the reader to increment 143 our last one where we dealt with that word adunaton and with the fact that with God all things are possible the next word in the greek text is gar an often used word and Gar 
is simply translated as for. Sometimes it's just not even translated, and it's an untranslatable word. And so we don't even put it in there. But it's simply translated here, for, F-O-R. The legible English word order then would read so far, for impossible. Now I'm doing this not just to be extremely detailed or tedious. I'm doing this to show you that we're doing a thorough investigation of this passage so that I'm not just making a blanket statement about it and say it means this. I want you to see that I worked to get it to reveal its meaning and we always must do this. So the word order in the Greek the legible English word order would read for impossible. And then there's an ellipsis or a lack of verb that we have to supply in order to fulfill that which we call the ellipsis or lack of a verb for it is impossible, we could say, is a good translation. For it is impossible. Or for it would be impossible is also a reasonable translation. So we have so far, for it would be impossible. We're dealing again with a rhetorical or even, yes, a hypothetical situation. Then comes tus hapax fotis thentas. Instead of writing these up here, because I have a lot to say in this one increment, I'll leave it to you to read these words in the upcoming printed edition of this message or somewhat of a transcript of it. So then it's, it's translated, those who were once enlightened. So we have so far, for it would be impossible for those who were once enlightened. The participle of fotizo describes the case of a category of persons who were once enlightened. That is, without needing to be enlightened again, once and for all, the famous word hapax is used. The aorist passive participial form of the verb fotizo, and then what he means is those who were once enlightened with the gospel and received its light. This category of persons had been enlightened with the light of the gospel of God about his son. It is therefore assumed that this enlightenment was accompanied by the evocation of faith in the enlightened ones. In other words, the enlightenment was accompanied by an ignition of faith by the Holy Spirit in those who were enlightened. The intended audience of this homily were also enlightened, as you see in Hebrews 10.32. But the warning, or the implied threat in Hebrews 6.4-6, through 6, the implied threat in Hebrews 6.4-8 does not apply directly to them because... As the writer is constantly saying, let us, let us, or we and us, in the first person plural, in this description, he uses the word them, those, or he uses words like a participial form of the verb anastarao, those who crucify again. So once again, it is assumed that this enlightenment was accompanied by the evocation of faith in the enlightened ones. And I want to say this again. The intended audience of this homily were also enlightened many years before this, according to Hebrews 10.32. 
But the warning or the implied threat in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 does not apply directly to them as the plural pronouns you or we are not used in this warning. Rather, it is about a proposed group referred to in the masculine plural. Verbs like anastaruntas, which means those who crucify again. Not you who crucify again or we who crucify again, but those who crucify again. Or paradigmatizantas, those who expose, or simply referred to by the masculine plural tus, T-O-U-S, the masculine plural article tus. The sense of this passage so far would be this, therefore. This is the gist of it so far. For you see, it would be impossible in the case of those who were once enlightened. Now, a second descriptor pertains to this proposed category of people. They have tasted the heavenly gift, it says. You'll see the Greek words for this in the printout. A second participle describes the same group or category as tasters of the heavenly gift, therefore. The word for taste, as we've seen, means to experience. We've seen that Jesus experienced death as the wages of sin for everyone while far from God or even without God in Hebrews 2.9. We're about to encounter this word again in Hebrews 6.5, the word that means taste, where the same rhetorical category of persons is said to have, quote, tasted the beautiful and advantageous pronouncement of God. Word of God in Hebrews 6.5 is rhema, not logos, as in Hebrews 4.12. It means a pronunciation. And so, if we've tasted of that good pronunciation, it means we've, in essence, heard God say about us, dikaiao, justified, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so, we've tasted, or this group has tasted, not us, even though we'll see this does describe the state of salvation. That these people have tasted the heavenly gift. This gift has its origin in heaven. The gift, it's called tes dorias, means literally the free gift. They've tasted the free gift of God. Tasting the free gift of God is what we experience in the free state of soteria. It's fact, actually called that in John 4.10 and Acts 8.20. Taste dorias, the free gift of God. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit, as referred to in Acts 2.38, 10.45, and 11.17 of Acts. It is the free gift, Romans 5.15, of righteousness Romans 5:17 or the gift of justification Romans 3:24 it is god's inexpressible undescribable gift in acts make that second corinthians 9:15 it's called the messiah's gift or the gift of christ in ephesians 4:7 it is God's gift of his own love in Romans 5.5. 5. This category of persons, then, is an imagined group 
who have been enlightened through a divine action. They have tasted for themselves a gift whose origin is heavenly. Epuranios is used here as an adjective. Heavenly. It is the gift of the man from heaven, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15. It is the gift of the man from heaven who is the second single inclusive representative of all mankind, also known as the final Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, and we compare that with Romans 5, 15 to 19 for a good read on what that gift means. This word eparanios, and I will write that up here because it's used many times in the scriptures. Epuranios means literally upon the heavens or in the heavens is E-P-O-U-R-A-N-I-O-S. Epuranios. And it looks like this in the English transliteration. E-P-O-U-R-A-N-I-O-S. Epuranios. We see the word for heaven in there. That's why I have the word Uranopolis, the heavenly city. This word Epuranios, that modifies the term gift, in various forms is found five times in 1 Corinthians. Epuranios, heavenly. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15.40, twice. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15.48, twice. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. It's found five times where it becomes even thematic in Ephesians 1, 3, 1, 20. 2, 6, 3, 10, and 6, 12. It's used once, although very significantly, in Philippians 2, 10. It's once used in 2 Timothy in 4, 18. And once in John's Gospel, John 3.12. It's found six times in Hebrews. Therefore, it becomes thematic, or it develops a whole theme. Hebrews 3.1, 6.4 here. Hebrews 8.5, 11.16, and 12.22. Two of these references speak of the heavenly city, Paulus. And those are Hebrews 11.16 and 12.22. That's what I'm calling Uranopolis, and that may be even the name of an upcoming series following Hebrews. Who knows? Here in 6.4, it refers to the source and origin of the gift of which this category of persons has had intimate experience. Its origin and source is from an otherworldly domain. It's from the realm of of the great king. It's from the realm of the great king's throne and of the heavenly tabernacle that was pitched not by men but by God for whom all things are possible including the recapitulation of all things in Christ called Panton Anakephaliosis in Ephesians 1.10. For it is impossible Now I'm reading what the translation should read so far. For it is impossible in the case of those who were once enlightened and who've tasted of the heavenly gift. This category of persons have also become companions of the Holy Spirit. That's the next descriptor. Companions 
metokos. They have not, re- not only received the gift of the Holy Spirit, they've actually become companions of the Holy Spirit. And this implies that the Holy Spirit has led them into the truth, John 16, 13, that is embodied in Jesus. In other words, they've gone fairly deep in the word of truth, led there by the Holy Spirit. This category of persons have, quote, walked in the Spirit in Galatians 5, 16, and the Spirit has therefore subdued in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree the destructive desires of their false selves sponsored by the flesh. Galatians 5.16-24 to 24. They became participants in the divine mission of the Holy Spirit and they have experienced the fruit of the Spirit which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, benevolence, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control, against which there is no law, Galatians 5.22 to 23. As participants and companions of the Holy Spirit, they may have also been privileged to experience the most divine of all activities, and that's cooperation with God in the salvation of souls. And they have become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, for to be a companion of the Holy Spirit is to participate in the second divine mission. The privileges of this category of persons did not stop there. In Hebrews 6.5, the writer goes on to say that they have, quote, tasted God's good word, good kalon, rhema for word, God's symmetrical pronouncement of them is what it's referring to. They've experienced God's symmetrical and beautiful pronouncement of them as justified in his sight and created in Christ Jesus. Having died with Christ and having been raised together with him and seated with him in heavenly places. This same category of persons, quote, have experienced the powers. The word dunamis here means dynamics. They've actually experienced the dynamics of the coming age. So far, the writer has given us an unparalleled description, and this is why it's so doctrinally important, this passage. Leave aside the exhortation. So far, the writer has given us an unparalleled depiction of the state of salvation and of the Christian spiritual life. Those are all the features of it. If we were to isolate this description from the warning aspect, we would have, in other words, an invaluable description of our benefits as people in Christ and even of our experience as people in Christ. This is the free state of soteria. This is the Christian way of life. This is the life and livingness of those who transcend themselves, living outside themselves and in Christ. But all of this is then followed by a huge downer. Then it says, and fallen away. Or fallen aside. The Greek word used here is extraordinary. It's the word parapipto. The word pipto means to fall, or it can mean to fall headlong, but parapipto means to kind of fall alongside. And I say it's remarkable because it's only found here in all the New Testament. 
If you look into the Septuagint Greek, though, it's found in Esther 6.10, and it's used in that sense to become neglectful. Consequently, there is at least a faint echo of Hebrews 2.3 about neglecting such a great salvation. In Wisdom of Solomon, a deuterocanonical book, meaning not canonical but close to canonical, Wisdom of Solomon 6.9, it has the nuance of falling into error. It has to do with committing apostasy or departure from the living God. In the context that has to do with the act of returning to the abrogated practices of their former associations in order to avoid the stigma of social shame and religious ostracism and even the possibility of persecution and martyrdom. The impossibility, therefore, has to do with renewing, listen carefully to this now, the impossibility has to do with the renewing of such a category of persons again to repentance. And that's palen anakanidzein eis metanoia, and you'll see that in print. To renew them again to repentance. Now, what does that mean? The word repentance here is a synecdoche, a figure of speech that describes the entirety of the spiritual life. In other words, it's impossible to get these people back into the spiritual life once they've fallen away, this category of persons. But the impossibility exists as long as they are effectively crucifying again to their own harm the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. Those are the two things this hypothetical category of people would be doing. They live in Jerusalem or they live in the immediate environs of Jerusalem. They want to avoid social shame and religious ostracism, so they say, let's renounce our confession of Jesus as, God, as Son of God. Let's go back and publicly offer temple sacrifices in public festivals. And by doing that, what this writer is saying, that category of persons in doing that would be, in effect, crucifying the Son of God all over again to their own harm. They would also be, what, exposing him to shame again, as he was when he was crucified, by people looking and saying, aren't those these so-called Christians? Did not they leave all these practices behind? Look at them, they're back. Maybe their Savior needs to suffer again. And that's exactly, it's a very, very unattractive picture, let's say it that, much, that's that far. But the impossibility here is also seen as universal, meaning that even God finds it impossible to restore them. But here's the key. While they are doing this, because to restore them while they were doing this is like letting rain fall on a field of weeds and thorns and thistles. And that would be tantamount to God lying. And such a thing could never be. This does not say, now here's where we get into uh, this. I know this is kind of a messy exegesis in detail, but I want to be thorough. This does not say that it is impossible for God to ever renew this kind of people again to the spiritual life and to the state of soteria or the experience 
of the spiritual life, which is salvific. God can certainly do so, and he can certainly turn them again. In Deuteronomy 30, in verse 3, Deuteronomy 30, in verse 8, that's what he says in principle. Also, Psalm 71, 20 to 21, where the psalmist writes about God turning them again. If God doesn't do that, for those that want to say there's no possibility of ever being renewed again if you apostatize or disobey God or depart from him, well, if God doesn't do such a thing, then Peter remains damned to this day for compromising the gospel at Antioch. And Paul said he stood condemned, Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Is he still condemned? I don't think so. If this is true and God doesn't do such a thing, then Moses will be banished from God's eternal rest for striking the, striking the rock twice, Numbers 20.11. It's pretty hard to make that case when we see Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Jesus. But even beyond this, if a category of persons were to be guilty of this apostasy and not re- renewed again, they would experience discipline even unto death in many cases, but they'd still be saved in the eschatological day, even as through fire. So there's a 1 Corinthians 3.13 to 15 connection with Hebrews 6.8, which we'll show in the next increment. For in increment 145 coming up, we're going to deal with the exegesis of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, which will round this off. But the point of this warning, and here's the point, the point of this warning is to show the impossibility of renewal after sin or apostasy by offering any sacrifices for sin under the old regime. We all sin, and I hate to say it, but it's an inevitability. But if we sin, then we never could receive a renewal again to the spiritual life by going to a priest with an offering because there is no such sacrifice for sin except the one once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why for the first time in many, many months, I will talk about a word called rebound and put it in a proper perspective rather than in an obsessive perspective. So I'll close today's increment by saying once again, the point of this warning is to show the impossibility of renewal after sin or apostasy by offering any sacrifice for sin under the old regime. In other words, there's impossibility of renewal by the inefficacious sacrifices, just like it's an impossibility to be saved by those sacrifices. This passage, therefore, ingeniously highlights the ineffectiveness or mere ritual effectiveness, if you look at Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, of those sacrifices. By doing that, there is an application to all readers of Hebrews, therefore. And this warning carries with it both an accurate depiction of the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, 
and by the Holy Spirit, which we have previously introduced as the free state of soteria. And it has an oblique emphasis on the once and for all and unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When we sin in any way, we fall away from this higher integration of human living. And we can't be renewed again to that life and livingness by any sacrifice whatever since there remains no more sacrifice for sins. And there is no penance you can do to be restored to that life. What God has provided for us is the provision of the private and honest acknowledgement of our sins, at which time God is happy. Faithful and just means happy. He's happy not only to forgive us our sins, but to purify us from all unrighteousness in 1 John 1, 9. That is, to renew us to repentance. Anakanizen eis metanoian, the title of today's message in Greek. Hebrews 6, 6. Or, in other words, this brings us up out of the reign of sin, R-E-I-G-N, into the reign of our king again. Not by sacrifices we can offer, not by penance, not by ten Hail Marys and fifty Our Fathers and two Glory Bees, not by any act of penance, not by any human good that we can do that we think might assuage or balance out the evil we've done. No! God has given us the provision of a private inward acknowledgement of our sin, which is followed by his justice and his faithfulness in forgiving us of the sin, purifying us from all unrighteousness, which is another way of saying that by our acknowledgement we are putting off the old man, the false self, and putting on the new man. In other words, we're being renewed to repentance, metanoia, which is a synecdoche for the whole spiritual life. This is all good news, and let me tell you something else. It cannot be in any way dissociated from the little theme that we like to call Jesus Christ and him crucified. So someone will say you're saved by faith. Another will say you're saved by grace. Another will say, let me just say this, you're saved by Jesus. All right, so far we have this, and we'll close. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, my translation with very little bracketed commentary. For it is impossible, or it would be impossible in the case of a category of persons who were once enlightened, who've experienced the heavenly gift, and who've become companions of the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, to renew them to repentance while... They are crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame, implying that the act of apostasy will involve what amounts to a public renunciation, in other words, of the confession they had made publicly in a public setting. We will continue our exegesis and commentary on Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 in increment 145. So stay tuned. Father, we thank you 
that the more we look into your perfect law, the more we see the perfect liberty that exists in the free state of Soteria. May we see it clearly, and may we see our salvation as being Jesus. And so in seeing Jesus, may we see our salvation. And we ask it in his name. Amen.